Well, we're glad to have you here this morning and, and um, on this uh, Resurrection Sunday and to worship the Lord and to remember his life, his death, and his resurrection and what that means to us as believers. And believe me, as a believer, <laughs> it means a lot. It is everything, the resurrection. For without a resurrection, we, as Paul says, would be most miserable. And without any hope, and just throw your hands up. Be nothing worth living for, would there? The one for a resurrection. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to, or 3 rather, excuse me, we're going to continue on in our study. We've been working our way through Ephesians. Um, Wednesday night, we're working our way, th- just beginning on 1 John. And uh, that's, that's a fascinating, fascinating book to study. But so was Ephesians. Boy, is it ever. As we've discovered, I hope you've discovered that so far, and I hope we will yet discover as we make our way through this book that as we stated at the very beginning, this is um, one of those books that takes you to the loftiest heights of that Paul could possibly elevate us to and showing us what God has done for us in Christ and what is yet to come. And I'm going to tell you something. It is just a, a, a mind blower, if we could put it that way, uh, as to what the Lord has in store for those who believe in him and obey him. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Jack said up here, if y'all... See, he carries on week after week. He said, you'll like me once you get to know me. <laughs> he says, it'll take, it'll take a while. He said, it'll take a while. And I said, yeah, it's been eight years, Jack, and <laughs> we're still working on it, but uh, we haven't given up, just so you'll know. <laughs> All right, chapter 3, verse 1 of Ephesians. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am also... uh, or or who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery from which uh, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now 
unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we contemplate this, uh, in many respects, a simple passage, but profound in others. And I pray, God, that what we have to study this morning would open our hearts wide, we would open our hearts wide and, and receive your spirit and acknowledge that you are Lord and to believe in that resurrection, that Christ is living today, and that we can do more than just believe the moment we see you in that coming day, but we believe it now, and it's a present-day reality for us. And we pray, God, that through this message that we would grow and be drawn ever deeper and closer into a living and vital and abiding relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, in chapter 3, we've been working our way through this thing, and Paul has laid out some amazing things for us concerning our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and what God has given to us in the Lord Jesus. And we noted at the very beginning of this letter, back in chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2 and 3, this whole idea of being in Christ and that everything that Paul is speaking about here is concerning a believer who is in Christ. Now that just eliminates an awful lot of theology. (laughs) And it puts us in a place where we need to recognize that Without our being in Christ, there is nothing. And in Christ, there is everything. We have everything to hope for, everything to live for, everything to change our life for, everything that that God has created us for and brought us here is worth living for. Because he lives. Paul changes from chapter 2 into chapter 3 with an immediate declaration that he's a prisoner. But he doesn't do so without this little phrase, for this cause. And it's important to know that, as we'll see in a few moments, that this new chapter... Of course, it's just a new chapter in, in an English Bible, but it, it, uh, it's, it's new in the sense that Paul is transitioning to some new thoughts, but he's not leaving behind what he just told us in chapter 2. So when he proceeds, he just, it's like this, I'm the prisoner of Christ, <laughs> For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ. Why did he have to put that in there? Well, I think it was just simply a reminder 
to the readers of this epistle that Paul was paying a heavy price for this gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, in looking at verse 13, he says, Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations. That is, probably related to his imprisonment and all the other things that Paul was going through. Don't faint at my tribulations for you, you Gentiles, which is your glory. So Paul had a desire in this passage to give his readers of this letter something to stand on, something to grab a hold of and hold to so they wouldn't faint, so they wouldn't become weary or disheartened, and especially not to be disheartened over Paul's present condition of being in prison. I mean, after all, Paul just got through laying out some things in chapters 1 and 2 that were just mind-boggling. Blow you away. You know, saved by grace. Raised us up together with Christ. Seated us together with Christ in the heavenlies. And that we are going to be like trophies of his grace unto the ages to come that just keep rolling on age after age. And if that be the case, Paul, how'd you get in prison? I mean, couldn't God just bump you out of there? What you doing over there? How did this happen? And he didn't want his readers to get disheartened because of his present condition. So then he goes on to say, oh, maybe I ought to say too, did you notice how it's in, if you've got a King James Bible, which I'm reading from, it's, it's a little, sounds disjointed there. And if you have a newer translation, some of you might have a dash at the end of that verse. And it's simply to show that and indicate that, you know, Paul didn't finish his sentence there. So I learned something in studying this. I'd never heard this before, uh, <clears throat> but it makes sense that Paul was using a device of the Greek philosophers uh, from a, and I'm not going to try to give you the Greek word because I, a lot of Greek words, I can get them down, pronounce them pretty good, but uh, this one is a toughie, so I just let it go. But I can tell you this, it, it just means becoming silent. In other words, I start talking and then I just, just stop. I don't say anything. And the whole idea is for emphasis, that we might pay attention to what Paul's got to say. And so he never does finish this sentence here. He just keeps moving on. And so he says then in verse 2, If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me to you, word, that is to you Gentiles. Now, we talked about very early on in, in our three message of introduction to this letter, and, and I, I could have gone on for three more. It's just so much to foundational to lead on or lead into this letter. It's incredible. But this would be one of those things that would argue 
for a circular letter. Because who knows who had read this at any given point in time if it wasn't written just to the church at Ephesus. Now, I don't know. And people have opinions about that both ways, and I'm not going to say one way or the other because I don't know. But this would be one of those indications that could lend us to believe that Paul was writing to more than one church here. But regarding this dispensation or this administration or other places translated stewardship, but I like the word plan, this plan of God that he has set forth, if you've understood that and heard that and know that, and this grace associated with that plan, how that by revelation in verse 3, he made known unto me the mystery. Now you see in verse 3, he says, he made known, but in verse 5 it says, which in other ages was not made known. Now the word ages is not our familiar word eon, but it's the word Ganea, and so it's the word for generations, which generations back, they didn't know about this. It wasn't made known. And that's what makes it a mystery. That's what makes it a secret. That's what makes it hidden. But it had been revealed. Paul, by direct revelation from God, had this revealed to him through Jesus Christ. And he makes that little statement there, as I wrote afore in few words. Now I'll learn something else on that too. <laughs> the sense of the passage means not that there was another letter written, which believe it or not, a lot of commentators think, well, Paul must have had another letter in mind, like the letter to Laodicea, which was lost. You know, we don't, Paul mentions it in, a, in another context but we don't have any existing copies of it. But rather, he's simply referring to what he's just stated back in chapter 2 and back in chapter 1. The things that he has written afore, he says, in a few words. Concerning this mystery, which had not been made known, but now you know about it. And not only do you know about it, but Paul tells him back here, as we noted last week, that <clears throat> they come to Christ in exactly the same way that a Jew comes to Christ, by grace. And that they are now members of one body, and they have a common head. And that's Jesus Christ. And they are no longer Jew or Gentile. But they're one new man, he says, in Christ, making peace in verse 15. And so, all of these things, fellow citizens now, he says, with the saints...
And then he come down to verse 20 and he said, you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And he leaves this metaphor of the body and the church. And he says, now you're like a temple. A temple that is being built. A structure. Apostles and prophets making up the foundation with Jesus being the corner or the cornerstone. Stone is implied. And other, elsewise, you know, Peter says that regarding this, that we are living stones comprising this, this temple, that God is in the process of building it. You know, one of the unique things I thought was pretty neat about all that was that it's a silent operation. Just as Solomon's temple was built and the stones were prepared outside the city and they were brought in without hammer or chisel or any such thing and they constructed that temple and it said there was no, no sound of a hammer or anything. Must have been a fairly quiet operation. Hauling those stones in and just laying them in place. Constructed so minutely and precise that they just fit perfectly right into the foundation and then up the temple went. Didn't have to make any adjustments. Didn't have to bring out a chisel and say, let's just knock a little off here. There was no sound. It was quiet. And you know what? That's exactly what is happening in the church today. As the church and the temple that Paul is speaking of here is being built, it's a silent operation. It's the work of the Holy Spirit building this temple. And he says here, even regarding that, just like Solomon's temple, it's fitly framed together. If you look in Strong's dictionary, it's compacted, means it fits right in place where it's supposed to fit. And I think that's just an awesome thought when we look at ourselves and consider our place in the body of Christ. If we're a believer and we are found in Christ and we are in the body of Christ and members of his body, that there is a, an exact place for us to fit. We're not a bump somewhere. We're not some, you know, dangling mole hanging off over here that we don't like. It's not supposed to be there and it looks ugly and so we want to get it burned off or removed. No, it's a perfect body and we have a perfect place to fit in that body and we are fitly framed together. This is one of those we mentioned as unique words found only in Ephesians, and it's found again over in chapter 4. So when Paul is talking about all of this, when he's talking about this mystery, which he says he wrote afore in few words, that is what he is referring his readers back to. All of these things that he's laid out for them in chapter 2. And the things are, it's going to move pretty quick now because Paul 
Paul moves on here then with, and, and finishes up in this chapter with a prayer. And then beginning in chapter 4, he just moves on to practical applications of all of these things. How we're to live in Christ. Now that we know what our place and position is in Christ. This thing that Paul is speaking of had not been revealed to the prophets, hadn't been revealed to the holy apostles, he says, till now. Until now. But now it's been made known. And so he says in verse 6, that, wow, that, this revelation, this mystery that has now been revealed to us, that the Gentiles should be, and I love these things here, he mentions three things, fellow heirs, the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. All of these are compound words, and if you looked at them literally, it's a lot more fun, really, because you could translate these as joint heirs, a joint body, and joint partakers. That's how you would look at it if you're going to say this is what it's literally saying or rendered. But we might look at it from another aspect and just simply say, we are fellow heirs, we are fellow members of the same body, and we are fellow sharers. I don't like joint body. I mean, that, it's, it's cool to look at it and say, hey, I see, I see the connection here now, what Paul's saying. But to give a smoother translation and say, fellow members of the same body. And, of course, he's referring to Jew and Gentile. And God has had this plan all along since before the foundation of the world He just didn't tell anybody. He just did not make it known until following the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the formation of the body of Christ. But now, and then revealing all of this to the Apostle Paul as to what his intent was in bringing the Gentile into the church and making them fellow members with the saints. This was uh, good news, if there ever was good news, to the nations of the world. Because earlier Paul had said, you were without Christ, you were without hope, you were dead in trespasses and sins, You were under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. You had nothing. You were nothing. You had nothing to hope for in this life or in this world. But now you have everything that you could possibly dream and hope for because this is the plan of God and he's included you in it. 
Now you have everything. Everything there could possibly be in Christ, it's yours. And so he goes on then to say in verse 7, whereof, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. This was delegated to Paul to be a messenger and a preacher of this gospel and this good news. That's why I think in other places, Paul calls this my gospel. This is what God gave to me to preach. He says in verse 8, He's the less than the least of all the saints. Is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? Unsearchable. Untraceable. This exhaustless wealth, as another person translated it, that we have in Christ. And you know, when you, when you get to looking at all that and you sum it all up, when you come back to chapter 1 and verse 20, verse 19, he says, to know what is the exceeding greatness or the surpassing greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Everything that Paul presents here to us that is going to be and, and is ours in Christ and will be apprehended by us in the future, in that coming day, turns on that right there, the resurrection. And the power that was associated with that resurrection. So consequently then, he says, these riches of Christ are unsearchable, untraceable, exhaustless. You cannot fathom as much as you might try all the things that are in Christ, we, we can't even comprehend it. Indicating to us that there's coming a day when these things are revealed to us, uh, to use a present day or modern day uh, expression, it's going to be mind-blowing. <laughs> there will be no way that we can conceive, and there is no way to conceive, what it's going to be like. I, I just, I, I, I lay in bed or I sit in my chair and I meditate on these things all the time. Or even when I'm praying, I get distracted when I'm praying. I pray and then all of a sudden, boy, I'm off meditating on some of these things. And I, I, I work, I try hard. I try hard to imagine what it must be, what it's going to be like. I try to figure out, you know, what, what the ruling and reigning and, and the, the glory and the honor and all of these things are going to mean the well done to hear that from the lips of Jesus? How am I going to feel inside? Well, I can't even think of anything on this earth. People can pat you on the back here and say, well done for a job, and you feel pretty good about it. 
But I can't imagine what it's going to feel like from Jesus to hear well done from him. What's going to, what kind of emotion is going to well up here? Just, there's no words left to describe it. Nothing. To know that we will go from being mortals in this life, that is being subject to death, and then being made immortal in the resurrection. And you know what the word, all that means is? Immortal means you won't be subject to death anymore. You go from being subject to death and dying, which we're all familiar with and we know about, and we know it's going to happen to us, save that the Lord would come before we would die, to being raised from the dead and to know in that moment that you'll never be subject to death again. Resurrection. So as the, uh, the hymn we just sang said, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. But I'll tell you what, because he lives, I can face today too. And that's what makes every day worth living. These untraceable riches that are in Christ. Well, he doesn't quit there. He says on in verse 9, a part of Paul's ministry then is to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. That is this, this partnership, this participation in this mystery. Paul wants us to know this. He wants every believer to know what it means to participate in this mystery of Jew and Gentile being one new man in the body of Christ, connected to the life-giving head. And the fact that the head is connected to the body tells us that we will always have the life of Christ because that head will never be severed from the body. Never. And so this, this partnership, this fellowship of the mystery, he says, which from the beginning of the world or the beginning of the ages hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. So Paul is just really going to a great length to emphasize how this had been hidden up to this point. But it's now being revealed to mankind everywhere. So much previously of what had only been given to the Jew was now the door was wide open and it was it is given to all men everywhere now i love this next verse two verses 10 and 11 because he tells us that 
Having said this, he says, in order that, or the King James says, to the intent that, in order that. Now, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known through the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now, I'll tell you, you could just park for a long time right here because I think of so many things. The principalities and the powers. I don't suspect that it's probably the good angels that he's speaking of. I have a feeling they probably know more than we think they know. But maybe it's the evil angels and the demons, or maybe it's just all of them who wonder about these things. And it's through the church, us, as we have assembled together and come together on a regular basis, worshiping God, lifting our hearts in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord with prayers that are of, uh, of unity and oneness, and when they see that, it is through this, our love for one another, and the grace that God has given to each one of us, knowing where we've come from, what we used to be, and what we are now as individuals, They see through the church the wisdom of God. And Paul said to the church at Corinth, he said, the wisdom of God does not work like the wisdom of man in the world. The wisdom of man in the world chooses the elite. Wisdom of God chooses the base things. And the lowly things. And then he elevates them. Man, I really like that. I like the way Hannah said <laughs> back there in 1 Samuel. He can take them from the bottom of the dunghill and then just raise them right on up to the top. That's, that's going from the lowest to the highest. It just can't get any higher or better than that. And he says there, in verse 11, all of this is being done according to the eternal purpose. Now, I want you to stop and think about that phrase for just a moment. Because when we talk about eternal, what do we mean by the word eternal? What does the average person in the pew or the average person out on the street think about when they think about the word eternal. And I would submit to you that most think of endlessness. They think of eternity as just something that goes on with unending out into the vast reaches of the future. But I want you to look at that verse real close there then. And notice what Paul says. 
He says, according to the eternal purpose. You know, if you think about that, if eternal here means endlessness, then God's purpose could never possibly come to an end. It could never be realized. It would have to just go on. God's purpose and plan would just have to go on and on and on into eternity. But God has given us in Scripture. Now, we know that God has other things going on into the future beyond the millennium, beyond the new heavens and the new earth. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that from the beginning of this book to the end, the primary emphasis that God has given to us and revealed to us is one of fulfillment, is one of realization, of one uh, uh, of bringing to completion what God has begun. And he wants us to aspire to that. He wants us to grow as believers and into Christian maturity so that we might realize God's purpose for saving us. So the reason I'm bringing that out then is simply to say that the phrase here literally means according to the purpose of the ages. God has a plan, a purpose, according to the ages, which he purposed or carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is a plan. There is a purpose. And it will be fulfilled or realized in time. Not out there in some endless eternity, because it could never be realized if time just went on and on and on and, and, and there was no completion to it. Thayer in his um, lexicon says this word purpose means a setting forth of a thing, placing it in view. Well, I like, I like that. This, this word is an interesting word, this word purpose. And uh, I want to get over here to it. I got, made a couple notes about it somewhere, I think. Yeah, right over here. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 2. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 2. Now, like many, many other times, you've got to read the verse before it to figure out what's going on there. So let's read verse 1 and 2. There the writer says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. And of course, he's talking about the uh, tabernacle and the earthly priesthood and so on. And he says in verse 2, For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now, I want you to look at that word showbread. 
That is the same word translated purpose back here in Ephesians 3.11. And if you look into the Gospels, you'll find it's translated showbread there in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. So what is he trying to tell us here? Well, if you were to talk about what this literally means, you would say they were loaves of proposition or um, <clears throat> loaves which were set forth, as Thayer says it, before the Lord. So they were loaves that were placed on that table in the holy place before the Lord. Now, there are other all kinds of applications that people make regarding the bread, and I don't know how many of them are true, or they, some of them are just based on tradition. Some say that the, the, the loaves, you know, there was six loaves and representing each, one for each tribe and so on, and that the loaves were kind of curled up at the end, you know, to make it look like a representation of the ark and so forth. Um, I don't know about all that stuff. It's conjecture. Maybe it's so. I don't know. But I do know what the word means. The Jews actually called them the loaves of the face. The reason they called it the loaves of the face was because it was the presence of God. So they called them the loaves of the presence, which I find pretty fascinating. So in every other context, though, where it's not speaking of the loaves in the tabernacle, it's translated presence. Now, is there any other connection here with this word in the context in which it's used here? Well, if you take it in its literal sense and the sense in which the Jews used it and understood it, I think we could say something like this. According to the presence of God in the ages, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you think about the tabernacle and you think about those loaves sitting there, you know, they, they put fresh ones in on a regular basis, and they would bring, it, bring them in there, of course, steaming hot, and that odor would fill the holy place. And it was a representation of God's presence. I don't know if there's an illusion here or not, but I'm going to share it with you. Because we talked earlier, and I, I, I haven't had time, well, I haven't gotten into developing the thought of God's plan to dwell with man on the earth, represented in Eden and the garden, the tabernacle 
and the holy place, or the most holy place, the church as God's dwelling place, and finally and ultimately with the new Jerusalem as God's dwelling place. In other words, in all of these, we see this nuance of God's dwelling and being present with us. And if we go back to Genesis and we look at that passage there, that initially that was God's desire when he created man and put him in the garden. That Eden, as a representation of the temple and the place where God would dwell, and the garden as the place where man would fulfill God's desires in replenishing the earth and covering the earth and being rulers over the earth and holding dominion over the earth. And then God bringing that to fulfillment in the new Jerusalem. The millennium is going to be a part of that, but it's going to be finalized in the, in the new Jerusalem. This, he says, is God's purpose of the ages, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because of that, he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. You know, back in Romans chapter 5, and we'll just take a brief sachet over there, but in Romans chapter 5, speaking therefore, uh, uh, I mean, speaking there of what has happened to those who are in Christ and being justified by faith in Christ, he says, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So it's something that we are placed in a position where we have access by the faith of him. And he says, with confidence. So in concluding it then, in verse 13, he says, wherefore, in view of this, I desire, or I, I'm asking you, you readers of this letter, I'm asking that you faint not because of my tribulations, because of my position or my place in prison. I'm, I'm the prisoner of Christ. You know, if you looked all over, all over the Roman world, there wouldn't have been anybody, anybody, that it was said they were the prisoner of Christ. They, were the, they would have said, I'm, I'm the prisoner of Nero. He's got me in prison. But that wasn't Paul's viewpoint. He said, I'm the prisoner of Christ. I am here for you Gentiles. And that's us. He paid that price and suffered as he did willingly and gladly for this message because he says, which is your glory? Now that word glory 
can be translated, as you well know, honor. I think Paul is trying to tell these readers, based on what they have in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's pointing them to the future, reminding them of what God has planned from the very beginning in laying the foundation of the world, and his purpose and his plan is going to be carried out in the end of the ages. And then more specifically, at the age to come. And it's going to happen. It is not something just whoosh out there in eternity that we cannot lay our hands on, that we cannot embrace or wrap. Sometimes we use the expression, we can't wrap our heads around it. This is something we can get a hold of. This is something that is real. And we need to embrace it. And we need to embrace the idea of the resurrection, the living Christ, because it's in him that all of these things that God has planned are going to happen. Let's pray. Father, there's nothing left that we can say, that I can say, concerning what you've done for us in Christ. Even Paul, it seems, struggled with words to find full expression for everything that there is in Christ. And even he said they're untraceable, exhaustless. We cannot fathom all that we have in Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes of understanding. As you said back there, and Paul, you know, use Paul back in chapter 1, Father, to talk about opening our eyes of understanding so that we can see what you desire for us to know now and to comprehend it and to grasp fully a hold or as Paul told Timothy to remind the believers there to lay hold on the life of the age to come Lord let us be desirous of that let us understand and know that there is life that you intend us you intend for us to experience and it's far more than just going to heaven let us be willing to reap those things for our own benefit because you want us to in Jesus name we pray amen